Well, if you've got a copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2 this morning. Luke chapter 2, away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. You may not know this, but that song was first published in the late 19th century in an evangelical Lutheran Sunday school collection for young children. That Sunday school collection was entitled Little Children's Book for Schools and Family. But a couple of years earlier than that, the first two verses of that song appeared in a magazine entitled The Sailor's Magazine and Seaman's Friend. It was entitled Luther's Cradle Song. And it was said that it was composed by Martin Luther and, and he sung that song to his children. And it said in that article that, that many German mothers still sing that song to their children to this day. Now it has been said since then that, that Martin Luther didn't actually write that hymn. We may not know who the original author was, but what we do know is the inspiration for that hymn was, was a single verse, actually a single phrase in a verse in the Bible that says they placed him in a manger because there was no room for him in the end. But behind that single phrase is a remarkable story about the birth of Jesus that teaches us some incredible truths. So if your Bible is open to Luke chapter 2, I want you to listen along as I read, beginning in verse 1. It says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, as we read that story about the birth of Jesus, we learn some incredible truths. Actually, I believe there are four truths that each and every one of us need to learn and we need to apply to our life today if we're going to live the way God intends for us to live. Now, here's truth number one. God is in control. I want you to say that with me. God is in control. Let's say it one more time. God is in control. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Have you ever wondered why? At this specific time in human history, Caesar Augustus, the most powerful ruler in the world at this time, issued a decree that caused a man and a woman who was nine months pregnant to leave their home in Nazareth and travel 90 miles through rough terrain, possibly through rough weather, to register 
for a census. Now what makes this even more of a question is that scholars tell us that this was the first census that was ever taken in the history of the Roman Empire. You see, when we read this in the Bible, it seems to indicate that this was the first census taken while there was a certain governor in Syria. But historians tell us that this was actually the first census that was ever taken in the Roman Empire. So why? Why issue a decree and why issue a decree now? Well, here's why. Because God is providentially controlling the events of human history to accomplish his divine plan. You need to understand that God is providentially controlling the events of human history to accomplish his divine plan. Now, some tell us that the reason for this census was to make sure that that everyone was paying their taxes so that the empire could continue to be expanded and so that the infrastructure for the Roman Empire could, could be funded. But that's only the reason on the surface. Because below the surface, God was moving the pieces of the board of human history to accomplish his divine plan. You see... Caesar Augustus may have been in control of the Roman Empire, but God was in control of Caesar Augustus. And God is always in control. God is the unseen hand moving the events of human history to accomplish his perfect plan. In 1787, Benjamin Franklin, one of our founding fathers, was speaking to the Constitutional Convention And he made this statement. Listen to what Benjamin Franklin said. He said, I have lived a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs the affairs of man. Did you hear that? One of our founding fathers, one of the founding fathers of the United States, said very clearly as they were meeting together, to write this declaration that we know as a constitution. He said it is God that is governing the affairs of man. And I want you to know that regardless of what people believe today about America and about our history, our founding fathers fathers realized they understood that there was a God and there was a God that was controlling human history. Always remember that the events that we see happening every day may appear accidental, they may appear coincidental, but the truth is they're providential. The life of every single person in the Roman Empire, millions of people were disrupted so that a pregnant lady would travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem to give birth to her child. God is providentially controlling whatever happens in human history. Over and over again, we see this this truth taught in Scripture, revealed in God's Word. Solomon understood this. In Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, Solomon said this. He said, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purposes that prevail. Many are the plans in a man's heart. Many are the plans in a man's mind. 
But it is the Lord's purpose that ultimately prevails. In Proverbs 21 verse 1 it says this, The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. Did you get that? God is in control of the king's heart, causing the king to do what God wants him to do. Solomon understood this. Daniel understood this. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel said this as he was lifting up a praise to God as God answered his prayer. Daniel said, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. And then Daniel said this. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and disposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and, and, acknowledge, and knowledge to the discerning. Who is it that sets up kings? And who is it that takes down kings? It's neither other than the Lord our God. In Daniel chapter 4, after, after Nebuchadnezzar had been wandering for seven years as a wild animal, it says this, The decision is announced by messengers. The Holy One declares the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. And He gives them to anyone He wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. God is the one who puts in power whomever he wants to lead. We see God working behind the scene. We see God setting the stage over and over again throughout human history. We see God working in and through the pharaohs of Egypt. We see God working in and through the kings of Assyria and Babylonia. We see God now working in the life of the emperor of Rome... To accomplish his purpose. Even today, God is moving the pieces of the board of human history, preparing everything for his return so that his perfect plan will be accomplished. And so we don't need to be filled with fright. We don't need to be filled with concern over who is sitting in the White House, who is sitting in the congressional seats. We don't need to be overly concerned about the news that we hear at night about what is going on in China and what is going on in Russia and what is going on in other places all around the world. Why? Because God is in control of human history. Now the truth is, God's providential control sometimes doesn't make sense to the human mind. Would you agree? Amen? But that doesn't change the fact that God is in control. Habakkuk the prophet certainly didn't understand what, what God was doing in his day and age. God spoke to the prophet Habakkuk and said this in Habakkuk chapter 1. He said, look around at the nations, look and be amazed. For I'm doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't even believe if, if someone told you about it. I am going to raise up the Babylonians, a cruel and violent people, and they will march across the world and conquer other lands. God said... I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, these cruel and vicious people, and they're going to conquer lands. People that did not worship him, people that did not acknowledge him. God said, I'm going to raise them up, and I'm going to use them. And Habakkuk, Habakkuk just didn't understand. And so he says to God later on in chapter 1, 
He said, but you're pure. You cannot stand the sight of evil. Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they are? I mean, the back is saying, God, I don't understand. I mean, yes, we've blown it. We've messed up. We've failed. But we're not as bad as the Babylonians. You mean you're going to use these evil, cruel, vicious people to judge us? See, sometimes it's hard for us to understand the the plans of God. Sometimes it's hard for us to to be able to figure out the, the movement of the pieces of human history that God is orchestrating. That's why it says in Isaiah 55, verse 8, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. And sometimes, to be quite honest with you, God's control of human history may be inconvenient. It may even be difficult for us. Can you imagine having to travel 90 miles on a donkey across mountainous terrain in difficult weather to go and and take part in a census? You couldn't do it online. You, You couldn't fill out the form and mail it in. You had to go to the town of the place of your ancestors. And so Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem. That was inconvenient, nine months pregnant. I mean, you women who have had babies, you you know that, amen? I mean, anything is inconvenient at nine months. And not only was it inconvenient, it was difficult. I mean, God's providential control led Joseph to be sold into slavery and and put in prison. God's providential control led Jonah to be swallowed by a large fish and spend three days in its belly. God's providential control caused Hosea to be in a painful marriage. And yet God was in control. And in each and every one of those situations, he was orchestrating his perfect will. And this is what I know. Even as God is in control of human history, he is in control of our lives if, and let me say this again, if we will listen to him and we will surrender to him. And if we do that, we will discover that his ways are better than our ways. And we will discover that his plans are better than our plans. And we will discover what Paul said in Romans 8, 28, when he said, and we know that all things God does works together for the good of them that loves him, those who are called according to his name. I am convinced with all my heart that God desires a relationship with each and every one of you. And I am convinced that God desires a relationship with your children and your children's children that do not know him. I am convinced that God desires a relationship with your neighbors that do not know him, your co-workers that do not know him. And God will use the good and God will use the bad and God will use the difficult to help accomplish his purpose. Somehow, someway, he does all of that 
without circumventing our free will. So are you on a rough road right now? Are you experiencing a difficult patch in your history right now? Who but knows that you are on the path to your Bethlehem and God is wanting to give you a manger experience where you can experience the power and the presence of God like never before. God is in control, whether you acknowledge it or not. Here's the second thing you need to know. Jesus is the Messiah. Look at verses 3 and 4. And everyone went to his own town to be registered. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. Now, Bethlehem was a small town. It's about five or six miles outside of Jerusalem. It was the burial place of Rachel, the wife of Jacob, the mother of Joseph. It was the home of Boaz and Ruth that we read about in the Bible. And it was the home of their great-grandson, David, who became the king of Israel. And that's why Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem because Joseph belonged to the house of David. Now, why is this important to this story? Because 800 years earlier, there was this prophet named Micah speaking for God who told us where the Messiah would be born. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Micah says this, Speaking for God. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. This is a clear prophecy to a king that is coming that will be unlike any other king who ever came. And this prophecy was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. But this is just one of of many prophecies about Jesus. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, God promised that the Savior would be born through the seed of woman. In Genesis chapter 12, God promised that the Savior would be born as a Jew. And in Genesis chapter 49, God promised that the Savior would come to the tribe of Judah. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised that the Savior would be born to the family of David. In Isaiah chapter 7, God promised that the Savior would be born of a virgin. And these, these are just a few of the prophecies that were fulfilled in the birth, the life, and the death of Jesus. This right here is is my coin jar. (coughs) May have to be my retirement one day, I don't know. But right now, they're right at a thousand coins in here. I know because I counted them to make sure. Right at a thousand. Now, I have in my hand, you can't even see it, it's so small. It's one cent in euros. It's the smallest coin, the smallest piece of money in the European market, in the European currency. It's a euro. Now, what if I took this euro and I put it into these thousand coins, nickels and pennies and dimes and quarters, and I put it in here and just mixed it up? 
And then I blindfold one of you. And I ask you to come here and reach down in here blindfolded and randomly pick out that one euro cent. You say, Rocky, that's ridiculous. That's next to impossible. Well, it, it, it is. The odds of you picking out the right coin are one in a thousand. One in a thousand. But that's nothing compared to the odds of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled being fulfilled in his life. Peter Stoner was the chairman of, of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena City College. He is best known for a book he wrote, which was entitled Science Speaks. And in that book, he talks about the prophecies in the Bible and the mathematical probability of those prophecies being fulfilled. And Stoner says, suppose we take eight, just eight of the Old Testament prophecies Jesus fulfilled. The chance of one person fulfilling all eight of those prophecies are one in 10 to the 16th power. Now, to help you understand what that is, that's a one with 17 zeros after it. It's one quadrillion. That's a lot. And the chances of one person fulfilling eight of the prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament is one and one to the quadrillion, or one and one quadrillion, one to the, the ten to the sixteenth power. Infinitesimal. And, and yet, there were many more than eight prophecies that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. I can't imagine, I just can't imagine that at the birth of Jesus, up in heaven, this scene, an angel comes to two of the prophets that are in heaven. They've been there for a while, Micah and Isaiah, and said, the Father has called me to come and get you because he thinks you deserve to see this. And he takes Micah and he takes Isaiah and, and he opens up the curtain of eternity so that they can see down to the events of human history. And as they're looking, they see that teenage girl Mary give birth to Jesus in Bethlehem. And as they are watching this event in awe, they feel this touch on their shoulder that is unlike any other touch. It's the touch of the Father. And he puts his hands around them and he says, Micah, told you he'd be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah, I told you he'd be born of a virgin. And he was. And so if you're a skeptic, if you're a cynic, if you're a seeker, I encourage you. No, I challenge you. Look to the prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. Look at his life and his teachings, the miracles that he performed. Look at how he died and why he died. Look at his resurrection. And then come away 
with any other conclusion other than this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, Jesus is the Messiah. God is in control. But there's a third truth I want you to see here. And that is this. Anyone can come to a manger. Look look at verses 6 and 7. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. (coughs) Excuse me. We say Jesus was born in in a stable, but what historians say is he was most likely born in a cave. Regardless of whether it was a make-do stable or a cave, what we do know is that it was the place where animals were kept. And when Jesus was born, he was placed in a manger. Now, now, that sounds kind of mysterious and special, doesn't it? But if you don't know, a manger is just a feeding trough. It's the place where the animals were fed. Now, why is this important? Why did God allow his son to be born in a cave behind an inn and placed in a feeding trough? You would think that the coming king would be born in a capital city so that the rulers and the royalty of the world could have easy access to him. Or you would think that he would be born in a palace where the rich and the powerful could relate to him. Or at the very least, you would think that he would be born in a sterile, at least a clean room. But instead, Jesus is born in a small town, in a cave, behind an inn, and he's placed in a feeding trough for animals eat. Now, not to be gross, but where the smell of manure fills your nostrils. A dirty cave where the animals were kept. Why? Here's what I believe. It was because anyone can come to a manger. Jesus didn't come for the rich and the wealthy. He didn't come for the influential and the powerful. He didn't even come for the healthy and the clean. He came for everyone. And here's the thing. Listen to me. If you're too good to come to the manger, you're never going to meet the Savior. Over and over again, we see throughout Scripture that God resists the proud. God gives grace to the humble. We are told that human pride will be brought down. Human arrogance will be humbled. Perhaps, just perhaps, God allowed his son to be born there because it was a place of humility. You see, your past can't keep you from Jesus. Your present can't keep you from Jesus. The only thing that can keep you from Jesus is your pride. Your unwillingness to come to the manger and kneel down before this baby that was born in a stable, a cave. God is in control. Jesus is the Messiah. Anyone can come to a manger, 
but there's a third, a fourth truth, and that is this. For many, there's still no room at the end. Look at that last phrase one more time. There was no room for them in the end. When they finally arrived in Bethlehem, they discovered that thousands of other people were there to register. And there was no room for them at any end or any place in the city. There was no room in the end. And the truth of the matter is, most people still don't have room for Jesus today. Not at Christmas and not at any other time. A little later, John, one of the disciples, wrote this. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. I believe with all my heart, this innkeeper was symbolic of us all today. You see, for most of us, for some we do, but for most of us, it's not that we willfully choose to reject Jesus. It's just that we don't have room for him in our lives right now. We're, we're too busy with our careers. We're too busy with our families. We're too busy with our fun. And so we don't have room for Jesus. One day we're going to have room. Someday we're going to have room. We just don't have room today. But tragically, the truth is that day never comes. Because what we discover is there will always be something that crowds Jesus out of your life. There will always be someone else that ends up taking his place in the end. And what ends up happening is we go through Christmas, we go through Easter, and every day in between, and we end up missing Jesus because we just didn't have room at this time in our life. In John 14, verse 2, it says this, in my Father's house, this is Jesus speaking, he's talking to his disciples and he's telling them, don't worry I'm leaving, but then he says this. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I am going there to prepare a place for you. Did you get what Jesus said? Jesus said, I've got a room for you. The question is, have we made room for Jesus? Now, may I say, Jesus doesn't want a little closet. Jesus doesn't want the kitchen. He doesn't want the family room. He doesn't even want the master bedroom. Jesus wants you to give him the house. In my Father's house are many rooms, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. But for many of us, there is no room for Jesus in our life today. So where are you at? God is in control. I, I know that. 
So I don't fret when I watch the evening news. I get aggravated sometime and irritated. I'll yell and scream at the TV and my wife joins in. But I'm not concerned because I know God's on his throne. Jesus is the Messiah. If the Holy Spirit had never touched my heart, which he did, the facts would prove who Jesus was. And I would have to bend my knee to him. He's the Messiah. Anyone can come to a manger. Your past can't keep you from Jesus. Your present can't keep you from Jesus. Only your pride, your unwillingness to bend your knee and bow your head and give him your life. But unfortunately, for some of you, today, there's just not room. So what's it going to be? Are you going to leave here and say one day, someday I'll make room? Or will you say today, give Jesus the house and let him take over and fulfill his purpose for your life? I want you to bow your head. I want you to close your eyes. With every head bowed, with every eye closed, If you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray this prayer with a humble heart, with a sincere heart, asking Jesus to save you. You can pray these words right now, and if this is what God is leading you to do. Dear Jesus, I come to you this morning knowing that I'm a sinner knowing that I've lived my life my way. I just haven't made room for you. I haven't given you my house, my life. But today I see I need to. I know my past can't keep me from you. You'll forget my past and forgive it. I know my present can't keep me from you. You will forgive it. I know the only thing that can keep me from you is my pride, so I'm humbling myself. I need you, Jesus. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. Today, I'm giving my life to you. Save me. Come into my house. And take ownership. I'm yours. Thank you for hearing me, Jesus. Amen.